Welcome to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. Act 1, Scene 1. And so the playwright begins his script. During my youth, I spent a lot of time doing theater, and the whole process began with auditions, of course, nerve-wracking and full of anticipation, excitement, and anxiety, wondering who might show up, who your competition might be, what exactly the directors were looking for, and whether you would land the role. At auditions, you'd show up and read short scenes with other candidates so the casting team could get a feel for each actor's abilities, their delivery, their style, their flair. They'd mix and match you, have you read multiple times, hopefully, with a variety of people as they sought the best mix for the cast. If it was a musical, sometimes you'd sing a few bars, be asked to learn a bit of choreography so they could see your movement, and after the initial auditions, you might get a call back. A chance to come and do it all again as they winnowed down the field, seeking to cast the right people in the right parts. And then you'd wait for the call to find out if you got a role or got the course or did not get in at all. If you made the show, your first rehearsal date was set and you'd show up and find out all the other cast members. And at that first rehearsal, you would often do a read through of the script, start to finish to get a feel for what the show was and what your role would really entail in the bigger picture. All the cast gathered, scripts passed out, sitting in a circle, and starting on page one, you'd read Act One, Scene One. And so it began. The story began to unfold, each one reading the whole script for the first time together, line by line, until you reach the end and curtain. Every story has a beginning, an Act One, Scene One. For the apostles of Jesus Christ, the real show is about to begin. They had lived fairly normal lives for many years until called by Jesus to leave their nets and follow him. And they did. And it was amazing, transformative. Their lives were never the same. Three years of ministry in and around Galilee, down to Jerusalem at times, hearing the treasures of the kingdom revealed. They heard Jesus teach, watched the miracles he performed, and struggled through the betrayal, the arrest, the death, but now the resurrection. But for those early followers, the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry were really just the rehearsal phase of things. As they learned who Jesus was, were taught what the gospel was, studied who God was and how they, who they were in light of all that, and rehearsed for the ministry that Jesus would entrust to them after all was said and done. And now it is showtime. It's their turn to step into what the Lord ultimately had for them when he called them years earlier, when they showed up at the audition, when they signed up for the gig. All the prep work and groundwork had been laid, and it's time to hit the stage. This podcast marks the beginning of season four of the Verbatim Word podcast, and this time around, we dive into the book of Acts in the New Testament. Some call it the, books of the, the book of the Acts of Jesus, as his work continues after his resurrection. Some call it the book of the Acts of the Apostles, because we see their role in fulfilling the Great Commission as they take the gospel forward and the church is established. Some call it the books of the Acts of the Holy Spirit because it focuses throughout on the Holy Spirit continuing the work of the Lord through His people, none of it possible apart from Him. And I think any of these is a plausible title since it really is a combination of all three. The work that Jesus began continues through His people by the work of the Holy Spirit, an eternal God using earthly vessels, jars of clay, to do His holy and glorious work since the first century and on until today something we are still called into almost 2,000 years later. No matter how normal, no matter, no matter how unqualified, no matter how broken we might be, God has made all the provision to enlist us into his service, get us ready for the parts we are meant to play, and thrust us onto his stage when it is our cue to do so. Followers of Jesus are called to get in on the action. 
So with that, let the curtain rise on Season 4, Episode 1 of the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we begin in Acts 1, Scene 1, Verse 1. The book begins this way in verses 1 through 3. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Here we have a prologue to what is written. The author refers to the former account that he made of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Most scholars agree that the author is a man named Luke, the same who wrote the gospel that bears his name, the Gospel of Luke, and that was the former account he is referring to. And this is the continuation, part two, the sequel. In the Gospel of Luke, he wrote of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up, his ascension. And now he writes more of what Jesus continued to do and to teach after he was taken up in his ascension. It's generally accepted that Luke was a doctor, a physician. To become a licensed physician in the Roman Empire, you had to complete your schooling in Rome, and then you were licensed to practice medicine. Many people had private doctors, servants trained in medicine to tend to the family. The family saw a servant or slave who had a great aptitude, and they sent him off to be trained as a physician and paid for it. And then the servant would return to serve the family. There are perspectives that perhaps Luke was the family doctor for this man named Theophilus but was then sent or released to become the private physician for Paul. We know that Luke joins up on the journeys of Paul in the book of Acts. In chapter 16, when the pronouns change from they to we, Luke is now part of the team. He became part of the entourage in some parts of the mission trips. And while Paul ends up in a Roman prison, or more like house arrest, after preaching boldly, many scholars believe Luke took the time to document the gospel from all that Jesus began to do and teach through Paul's arrest as sort of a legal brief or testimony, getting the story all straight in an order for Paul's defense. Luke was a scholar, and his writings use a lot of vocabulary found nowhere else in the New Testament writings. Luke's gospel uses a lot of medical terminology not used in the gospels. Interesting as well, he's the only Gentile author in the New Testament. So cool, since the gospel is for Jew and for Gentile. And his writings combined, the gospel of Luke and Acts, make up 26% of the text in the New Testament. What a servant. It's hard for me sometimes with all I have going on to write emails or respond to texts. But Luke was busy as a physician and a missionary and documenting their history of Jesus' ministry in the church. A true servant of all, with his mind on serving kingdom purposes, even as he worked in a seemingly secular career. And Luke is writing this second account to Theophilus. The name Theophilus means lover of God. It could be a general address in that the book was written to all the lovers of God, since those who follow God do not do it just out of principle of duty. But we love him because he first loved us. A powerful aspect of the gospel, that it, that it is God's love that initiated the gospel. Going all the way back to John 3.16, For God so loved the world. And that Christians love God, a true love relationship different from religion. It's a good place to stop and take a pause and ask ourselves, Do you love him? Not just serve him or obey him or work for him or fear him, but do you love him? Of course, all those other things are part of expressing love to him or acting out love for him, but are we truly found to be a Theophilus, a lover of God? 
I was reading a book recently that focused on recentering on the basics and being able to turn down the noise of this world to focus on the most important things, the simplest things. And it was talking about loving God. I remember a song made popular by Rod Stewart, who I don't particularly like. My sister used to mock his raspy voice every time he came on the radio in the 1990s, sort of like she had laryngitis. But the song was, Have I Told You Lately That I Love You? recorded first by Van Morrison in the late 1980s. And the song went like this. Have I told you lately that I love you? Have I told you there's no one else above you? You fill my heart with gladness, take away all my sadness, ease my troubles, that's what you do. So the book I was reading recently didn't exactly mention this song, Have I Told You Lately That I Love You? But it did ask that question. Have you reflected on loving God? because everything else flows from that. And the author of the book I read encouraged us to take time daily, multiple times daily, to pause for one minute and just tell God that you love him and to let that sink in, that the God of the universe has come to dwell in the life of the believer because he loves us. And that has made a way in Jesus to do so and establish the most intimate communion. And that we should continually come back to that center point of just stopping and telling God that we love him. I love you, God. I love you, Father. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Holy Spirit. I love you, Lord. And as we declare that and remember that, everything else seems to line up again once more. It's amazing how many of our fears, our anxieties, and worries we face daily stem from a sense of amnesia that God does love us. John wrote in 1 John verse 19, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. It takes some perfecting to be made whole and secure in God's love, and it takes returning to that place of love often to rest upon that foundation. How often we need to realign ourselves to get everything back in line. I go regularly to a chiropractor for a few years now and it has been really helpful. The x-rays every six months to a year confirming that things are lining back up continually to what they were. And a lot of the pain and other things I was experiencing are gone or, or not what they were. But when I miss a few weeks, things start to go back again ever so slightly. But I can definitely feel that I need some adjusting, some aligning. Have you told him lately that you love him? The author I read recommended doing this a few times each day, not a yearly retreat or check-in or spiritual Valentine's Day, but continually throughout the day. Remind God that we love him and remind ourselves that we are lovers of God. Luke is writing about these things, the continued work of Jesus to Theophilus. Generically, it could be to all lovers of God as we turn to Acts to be taught and encouraged and challenged through this Act 1 of the church's first years. But scholars also believe this could be an actual man named Theophilus, and many think this could be Luke's friend or former master. I mentioned that physicians were often servants of wealthy citizens, and some postulate that Luke may have first served Theophilus and then was given to travel with Paul at some point to help him, as Paul is speculated to have had health issues. Some think the thorn in the flesh given to Paul that he speaks of in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, might be a physical ailment. Some believe it could be an eye issue, pointing to something a bit odd that Paul wrote in Galatians 4, For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. At the end of Galatians in chapter 6, as Paul takes the quill from the scribe to whom he is dictating, he asks the reader to notice with what large letters he is personally closing the letter. Maybe a reference to poor eyesight, so the need to write big. Some speculate this may be due to potentially getting malaria by Paul, something that may have occurred on his journeys through various regions in those days of old. 
So it is a theory that Theophilus may have been Luke's original master. And now, as Luke writes, Luke is with Paul, and he is writing back to his sponsor, Theophilus, to give an update. Interesting to point out that in the Gospel of Luke, he writes to him as most excellent Theophilus, expressing respect and honor and some hierarchy. But by the time he writes Acts, it is just Theophilus, no excellent Theophilus. There was a class system in effect in Rome, but for those who came to Jesus as Savior, who were born again to the kingdom as well as to the family of God, the church, there was no rank and file, because all men are equal at the cross. In the local church, a master and servant could both be saved and born again, and before, before this there was a power hierarchy. But in Jesus, they were just brothers. In fact, in the church, the servant might be called and gifted to lead, while the master might be newer in the faith and learning from the servant. Could it be that when Luke wrote his gospel first, sometime before, he wrote to most excellent Theophilus, his master and authority over him? But now, writing the book of Acts, Theophilus has gotten saved in the meantime, maybe even through the words of the gospel that Luke wrote, the testimony of Jesus bringing Theophilus to faith in the Savior. And these two men are now brothers. So it's just Theophilus. How wonderful that we are all same before the cross of Christ and that the prescription for all of us is the same. Paul reminded the Galatian church of this when he wrote, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So no matter who Luke and Theophilus were, as believers, they were both the same. Sinners in need of a Savior, the same Savior, Jesus. How sobering to know that no one is really special when it comes to needing Jesus. There's not a VIP lounge or no backstage passes. There's no diplomatic immunity or executive priv privilege that sets some apart. I remember seeing Shaquille O'Neal play basketball in person when I was in college at the University of Hawaii. It was early in his career, and the Lakers played a tournament in the islands each year. I think it was Kobe Bryant's first year playing as well in the NBA. But Shaquille could play, and he was tall, and he dunked, and he had huge feet, and the crowd ate it up. Each time he made a successful play, they went nuts, and he ate up that the crowd was eating it up. And I felt for a brief moment a tinge of jealousy because I am horrible at basketball. And Shaquille made it look so easy. Now, granted, there is some natural ability to take into account. And I'm not exactly a towering giant by nature. That hoop and net are a bit further out of my range than Shaq's. But in the jealousy, I had this thought. Before the basket, Shaq and I were not equal. He had a much greater advantage. But before the cross, we stood on equal ground had just as much of a chance. I was just as close to the cross, cross of Christ as he was. The cross was God's prescription for both of us, for any of us when it comes to salvation. And what a comforting thought that is, isn't it? And we look again at this prologue. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up and after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God.
Luke has more to write. The gospel he wrote was not enough. Jesus began to do and teach in the things in the earthly ministry, but the work continues. Because though the religious officials tried to silence Jesus in the message, and though the Romans became participants in attempting to stamp out Jesus and his followers, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering with many infallible proofs. Jesus was alive, and his ministry continued. And that is what Luke will write about in these forthcoming chapters the birth of the church, and the way that the gospel spread in those first decades. And Luke says a key thing in verse 2 that will become a thread throughout the book of Acts. He wrote, Until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Luke has a clear grasp and focus of the Holy Spirit. He even makes the observation of Jesus' ministry, that through the Holy Spirit Jesus had given commandments to the apostles. Jesus had a Spirit-filled ministry. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon certain people at certain times for certain purposes, God's presence overshadowing them, empowering them to be participants in the work of God. And the Gospels record that Jesus was God, a divine nature, fully God and fully man. But that at the start of his public ministry, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. It's recorded in all four Gospels. And Luke mentions the Holy Spirit right from the start, because with the ascension of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is the primary member of the Trinity working in and through the church to fulfill its mission. He's the member of the Trinity that in many ways is at the helm of Jesus' earthly ministry that continues in our world, and that we are invited and charged to be a part of. Luke introduces him, the Holy Spirit, right from the start, here in the prologue, the introduction. Many in the church do not fully know or understand the Holy Spirit, or misunderstand or even misrepresent Him at times. I know in my own walk with God, I wasn't quite sure what to make of the Holy Spirit. The church I got saved in gave a big emphasis on Jesus as Savior, restoring me to a relationship with God the Father. And while the Holy Spirit was mentioned, He was kind of a nebulous, a mystery. I knew when I had some goosebumps or something cool happen in a spiritual way, people said, oh, that was the Holy Spirit. Many of us can fake our way through our Christian walk with some unfamiliarity or ignorance of the Holy Spirit, or some discomfort which holds him at bay. But just who is this masked man? Who is the Holy Spirit? He's the third person of the Trinity, and he is all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. Same heart of God, same essence of God, because he is God. Jesus said the Father would send another helper. The word is alos. It means another of the same kind or quality. He's not a substitute teacher while Jesus is out on personal leave. And he's called the helper, the teacher, the comforter, the promise, all good things, and one that Jesus was confident in to continue the work. As Jesus had been with the disciples, so the Holy Spirit would be. But Jesus saw it as a new and improved way in essence. In fact, in laying out more on the Holy Spirit in John 14, uh, verse 16, Jesus said, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. That's a pretty bold statement. That Jesus said the next phase of God's work on earth would be greater, and that he was getting out of the way to let the Holy Spirit take center stage. Able to fill, transform, lead, guide, and empower each believer in their day in history and throughout the church age. So how is it that the Holy Spirit is so qualified and available? But the church and believers seem at times to ignore him being there or not know that he's available, nearer than we can imagine. 
We were sitting in church one Sunday, sitting in a section we normally don't. And during the break uh, after worship and announcements and before the teaching, we met a gentleman sitting behind us, and he asked about my t-shirt. It was one from my sister's boutique company, Ivy & Co. And emblazoned across the front was the word Ohana, which is Hawaiian for family a word much of the world knows now because of a Disney movie called Lilo and Stitch in which was said, Ohana means family, and family means nobody is left behind or forgotten. So there in the church with the shirt, the shirt that said Ohana, the guy asked about the shirt, and I shared the story of my sister's products that highlight Hawaiian words. And then we returned to our seats to attentively listen to that day's sermon. Fifty minutes later and a few closing songs later, once the pastor had dismissed us, we resumed our talk with the man behind us. The conversation led to our background in ministry, and the man asked if we had ever been involved in pro-life ministry. We shared that it was not a primary ministry, but that we knew of a local one that we supported called Crossroads Clinic, and that we had helped fundraise with their annual Walk for Life for a few years. We asked if he had heard of Crossroads Clinic, and he simply said, tell me more about them. So we did as much as we knew. A local pregnancy clinic reaching the abortion-minded, offering free ultrasounds and sharing alternatives with clients and the gospel, and a dynamic ministry in not only saving babies, but sharing the gospel with fruitful results. Well, the gentleman to whom we were telling about the clinic that we supported smiled a sort of devious smile, and he said, well, actually, I have heard of Crossroads. In fact, I am the chairman of the board of directors. I was just curious to hear what public perception was of the clinic, so I asked you to tell me more about them. Sneaky guy, but I guess we passed the test. With a, in a few months, we were volunteering there, and soon after, Aaron started working for them full-time. But right there in our same church, right in the row behind us, was the chairman of the board, and we were clueless. We just thought he was some guy a few years our senior. Never talked to him before, though he looked familiar, and we had likely exchanged glances at church before. But we were clueless of just who was sitting behind us in church that day. For many, that's what it's like with the Holy Spirit. People are clueless that he is there, unsure of what his role is, not clear on what he does, and not conversing with him, though he is right there. What a resource we found in talking to the chairman of the board that day, and what a resource we have, have all have at all times in the Holy Spirit, and yet he goes neglected. Luke will not let the Spirit go neglected or ignored in the book of Acts. Even here in verse 2, mentioning him, mentioning the Holy Spirit is one of the main characters in the book. Jesus will emphasize in the first chapter just how much those first apostles needed the Spirit that he was about to send. And the same goes for us, too. We can depend often on our own talent or our training or our preparation or our titles and accolades, can't we? Of course, we use all those things for God, at least we want Him to, but we still rest primarily on what we can do and who we are, and then ask the Holy Spirit to fill in the few blank spots that we might have. But the Holy Spirit is the primary piece of the puzzle for the early church, and for us as well. I think of Luke himself. This guy is very qualified. He's a doctor. He's smart, intelligent, articulate. All his abilities, training, his smarts, and certifications, it opens doors. But Luke himself knows, even in verse 2, all those things that he brings to the table are nothing without the Holy Spirit. But those things with the Holy Spirit become a powerful tool and force for the kingdom, just as it is for you and I. We'll see early on that these disciples had the best teacher, Jesus. They had the best classroom, the dusty roads of Galilee and the fishing boats of Tiberias. They had the best internship, healing sessions and feeding multitudes and dissecting theology with the Pharisees of their day. But even with all that they had naturally or had been trained in intentionally, they were not prepared without the Holy Spirit. 
He was the key piece of the equation, and apart from him, it would all be in vain. Notice the exhortation Jesus gives in verses 4 and 5. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's a gathering with Jesus. He was assembled together with them. This is something they had done for years before the crucifixion. Camped in the open, cramped taking naps in a boat, slumber parties at Peter's, mother-in-law's house, sitting as a group in the synagogue as the Pharisees grilled them. But now, since the resurrection, Jesus has been coming and going, appearing to them at random, behind closed doors sometimes, preparing them for his departure 40 days after the resurrection. And on this occasion, they were assembled together. And he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. He commanded them. The word is parangelo. It means to order, to charge, not a suggestion, not a request, not some friendly advice. It was a command. Stay in Jerusalem. Wait for the promise. The word wait in the Greek means wait on an event. It wasn't a forever waiting or a pointless waiting. Something would happen. They were to wait for the event when the promise of the Father was to arrive. Which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They had been called and enlisted to learn and to prepare. They had rehearsed for three years in preparation to take the message forward. But there was one more thing that they needed before they could get the green light to go out, and they were to wait for it. Otherwise, things would not go well. We were driving home from California at the start of the summer, having spent a week with family, gathering to honor my grandmother who had passed as well as to celebrate 50 years of my parents' marriage. And on our way home, we figured we would stop at the Grand Canyon. Erin had made a quick stop with her dad there some 20 years ago. When she moved to California, they pulled into the parking lot, took a look, and then drove on. But I had never been there, and together we had not. And so before going to California, we threw the tent in the car, an air mattress, and some sheets. So I didn't pack any blankets, because in my understanding, Arizona, the state where the Grand Canyon is located, well, Arizona's hot. In fact, on our way to California a week earlier, it was hot. Temperatures in the hundreds near Phoenix. That's in the 40s when it comes to Celsius for our international listeners. We drove through the desert, and it was desert, hot as hot can be. So in my mind, we will just need sheets of that if we were to stop at the Grand Canyon and tent camp. I assumed all of Arizona would share in the miserable heat, right? So we're driving from California headed to the Grand Canyon, and we plan to tent camp one night, do a quick morning day hike, and then hit the road again to head home. And a few hours before we get there, I checked the weather forecast for the Grand Canyon. I was surprised. It was going to be 40 degrees that night. That's about 4 degrees Celsius. This was hard to believe since at that moment as I searched the weather, we were driving across Arizona as well, and it was near 100 degrees. How was it possible that within a few hours it would drop 60 degrees, hovering just above freezing? Well, being from Hawaii, I am geographically challenged at times, and I did not realize that the Grand Canyon is in the mountains, about 6,000 feet elevation. In fact, it is quite alpine, full of trees and evergreens all around, and in the middle of it all, the iconic Grand Canyon. It's high desert, and with that, the temperatures can plummet at night. So here we were, a tent, an air mattress, and a few sheets, and we were planning to camp. What are we going to do? Well, we did what all faith-filled people do when they need, have a need. I'd like to say that we prayed or read scripture or had a vision, but no, we found a Walmart. 
We stopped at Walmart a few hours before the canyon and we bought three cheap fleece blankets, something, anything to make that night bearable. It helped a bit. We were cold that night, slept in our tent, fully clothed, layers on, a hoodie over my head. Erin put pillowcases over hers to keep her head warm. And it was a miserable night, but we made it and saw the Grand Canyon the next day and drove off into the desert to head home, which of course it was 100 degrees again on the road the next day. But that night, oh my gosh, cold, so cold. But here's my point. We were not prepared. We had a tent, we had the mattress, we had the sheets, but we needed more. We would not make it. There was one more stop along the way that we needed to make. For us, it was Walmart, and we were so thankful that we did. Not sure we would have made it that night otherwise. But while our flimsy, cheap fleece throw blankets got us through that what we could face that night, God has given us so much more. The promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. What the disciples would face would be harder than they anticipated. It would be more challenging than they had thought. It would stretch them more than they had imagined. All that they had gone through to prepare was not enough, but the Holy Spirit was the promise that would make all the difference. So they were commanded to wait for it. We fall short in life, far short in life, when it comes to ministry and doing the work of the kingdom for sure. We do nothing effective without him, and waiting for the Holy Spirit is not a recommendation. It is a necessity. We've all run ahead in our own strength and before and made a mess. Even Abraham with Hagar, the children of Israel with Ai after Jericho, gone on our own wisdom, our own strength, our own abilities and resources, and we have failed. But we also need the Holy Spirit for the day-to-day -day things too. We rush into a conversation which turns into an argument because we did not wait to be filled by him for that situation. We try to fulfill our roles as parents or spouses or friends or employees with our own experience or limitations, the extent of our resources, and we neglect waiting to step forward with the Holy Spirit. We need Him desperately. And when we do not wait, when we go forward in impatience or our own strength or we respond in the flesh instead of the Spirit, things do not go well for us. We'd be wise to wait to be in the Spirit rather than moving forward in the flesh. Jesus said that they would soon be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Just as they had marked a new start with John when he had ceremonially cleansed them in the waters of the Jordan with his baptism, so a new refreshment, a new season, a new dunking in which they would be drenched in not water but in the Holy Spirit, his presence dripping from them. I imagine the dog that bounds into the cool water of the lake or the ocean, soaks up all the water, and then bounds onto the dock or the shore, makes his way to the middle of a group of people and begins shimmying, sending water spraying every which way. These disciples would soon be baptized and drenched, his presence all upon them, but a continual supply and drenching. Jesus had foreshadowed this earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. He said, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, now was the time, not many days from now in Acts chapter 1, baptized in the Holy Spirit, ultimately fulfilled in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. The conversation continues, Acts 1, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put into his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. 
All along, these students of the Old Testament knew that the Holy Spirit in the, in the past came upon key people at key times to do great works for God. So when Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit come, coming upon them soon, they wonder, is this a clue? Is Jesus about to take the kingdom now that he's resurrected, march into Jerusalem, overthrow the Romans, and liberate the Jews? Is that why the Holy Spirit's arrival upon them was imminent? With this misunderstanding, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The truth was Jesus would not restore the kingdom in the way that they anticipated in his first coming. He will do that at his return. And he says, It's not for you to know those things, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Their assumption was that they might need the Holy Spirit for the daunting task of restoring the Jewish kingdom, but that was not the agenda. They did not need to worry about that, but they needed to focus on receiving power when the Spirit came upon them for something else. The word upon there, it's the Greek preposition epi. We see other prepositions paired with the Holy Spirit in Scripture as well. There's the preposition para. He is alongside. As you, as you, he's with all of us in the world, an all-present Holy Spirit alongside us, arms around our shoulder, gently seeking to draw us to Jesus. There's the preposition N. He is in us as he seals the believer as his own, marking us as his property, his belongings in this world, the deposit sealed for pickup at a later time. And here, the preposition Epi. He will be upon us, overshadowing our limitations, a dynamic presence that is not limited by our limitations. That is what they would be waiting for and receiving, but not for some political coup they anticipated. We read, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. They would receive power. They wouldn't earn it, or deserve it, or work for it. Receive it. It was a gift, a promise, something of grace. They would receive power. The word is dunamis, dynamite, dynamite power, noticeable, impactful. They would receive power to be witnesses, not to do witnessing or to go out and witness, not just to be busy in ministry, but to be witnesses in the places and the roles that God had called them and would call them to be and to go to. Jerusalem, right at home, their own backyard. Judea, the areas and spheres within reach, the doors the Lord would open as they lived life in that region. Samaria, an area they avoided because of prejudice and misunderstanding, but an area Jesus would ask them humbly to reach out to as he shared his heart with them. And to the end of the earth, steps of faith for these first century people who often did not travel out of the unfamiliar, but stayed in that which was known and comfortable. Interesting contrast. They thought they might need the Spirit to do a work of taking the kingdom, something Jesus did not even have on the agenda for them. Instead, Jesus offers them the Spirit for what they will be called to be faithful in, things that they did not even know or understand at that point in time. But it, whatever it was that the Lord would call them to, the best they would be best to wait until they were filled with the Holy Spirit before they took another step. Some people have recurring nightmares, like showing up at school and not having studied for the test or something. I've not done a lot of theater for a long time, but I still have nightmares at times of getting ready to go on stage, but something is amiss. I don't know the script or the scene or even the play that we're doing or I'm not wearing the costume. In essence, I am not ready. Same with us and the Holy Spirit. 
we are not ready until we are filled with him. And we do not need to be the pastors or evangelists or super Christians of the world to qualify for a measure of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We all need him if we are to live a life that brings Jesus glory. Sometimes we might say, I have just a small part though. I probably don't really need the Holy Spirit. It's not true. We all need it, even in the smallest areas of life. In fact, while needing the Holy Spirit to preach a sermon or share with a stranger or go on a missions trip is certainly necessary, the daily is probably the most important. We need spirit-filled parents, spouses, employees, citizens, neighbors. Can I encourage us all to seek the Holy Spirit daily? I think there is one baptism of the Holy Spirit, but subsequent fillings, since we leak a lot. And an acknowledgement that we need to be filled again is not met with a scolding or a, what are you talking about? I gave you some Holy Spirit last week. What did you do with him? Where did you leave him? No, as Luke will quote Jesus later in his gospel, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more is the father to send his Holy Spirit upon you and I? And some of us are relegated to the small parts because we have not yet fully leaded, yielded or invited or, or opened ourselves up to being soberly aware of the Holy Spirit and our need for him to be upon us. And we can't be cast in the bigger roles awaiting us until we get to these basic roles, until we get those roles down and we learn to do them in his power with his Holy Spirit so that he gets the glory. Then as we are faithful in the little things, he can trust us with more and give us a greater measure of his spirit if needed. When they get ready to film a scene in a movie, the crew members take a stand in front of the camera and holds the clapperboard and they announce the scene and the take. And then they yell, action! And the scene plays out before the cameras. Who knows what the next scene holds for us as individuals or as a church? But the Lord will yell, action! any moment and we need to be ready. It doesn't matter what it is and how it will play out. We all need the Holy Spirit. And God has him on standby if we're just ready to ask. So ask him in faith and receive him by grace and yield to him. Listen and respond. It may be more natural than you think, lacking the bells and whistles you thought needed to be there, but he will respond to your invitation. Lord, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit in this new season. Or for those of us who have never asked, may they cry out to you and yield to you. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but that you have come to us, a helper, a comforter, a teacher, the power that we need. Teach us to walk by the Spirit, and may you receive all the glory. We receive you now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.